Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The Petschek House in Prague, built in the 1920s as the residence of one of Czechoslovakia's leading businessmen, has been a private home, a German general's residence during World War II, and the U.S. ambassador's residence. In 1968, film actress Shirley Temple Black was visiting Prague and the house when Soviet troops invaded the country to put down the Prague Spring. She later became ambassador to that country and lived in the house. So too did Brookings senior fellow Norm Eisen, who served as U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014. He is the author of a new book about the home and its history, The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives and One Legendary House. On today's episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, Eisen is interviewed about The Last Palace by Brookings senior fellow Thomas Wright, director of the Center on the United States and Europe. Stay tuned after the interview for another coffee break. In this edition, meet expert Danny Bahar, a Rubenstein Fellow in our Global Economy and Development Program. He's been a guest on the show a few times, but in this coffee break, you'll find out more about his background, why he became a scholar, and what book recommendation he has. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, here's Tom Wright with Norm Eisen. Thank you, Fred. My name is Tom Wright. I'm a senior fellow at the Project on International Order and Strategy and director for the Center on the U.S. and Europe at Brookings. And I am delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Norm Eisen. Here today, Norm has a terrific new book out in all bookshops and online on September 4th called The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives, and One Legendary House, which looks at this terrific palace in Prague and all of the wonderful sort of stories of individuals, including Norm's experience himself as ambassador for President Obama to the Czech Republic. Norm, I'd like to later on get into the future of Europe and where this is sort of headed, but let's start with why you wrote this book. When President Obama asked you, to be ambassador to the Czech Republic. How much did you know about this story before you went there? Did you sort of always intend to write a book about this? Or most ambassadors or former diplomats tend to write memoirs, which are just fully on their own sort of personal experience. But what's really, really interesting about this book, and it's beautifully written, by the way, in a really wonderful sort of splendid history of the Czech Republic and of Europe's historical dramas throughout the 20th century. But why did you decide on this topic? Thank you, Tom. I did not always intend to write the book. It really only occurred to me after I had finished my tenure, almost four years in Prague from 2011 to 2014, four momentous years when we saw the rise again of the illiberal cycle that has occurred after every democratic surge in a liberal counterattack, and we're in the midst of one now on both sides of the Atlantic. And it was only when I came back and I had all these marvelous stories that I had heard about the house where I lived in Prague, Otto Petschek's villa, described by John Updike in The New Yorker as the last palace, which gave me my title. And having lived in that magnificent 150-room-plus house, which some say 
is uh, one of the most beautiful, even the most beautiful in Prague. Having been to Prague, you know that saying something. I thought, wow, I've heard these incredible stories about the people who lived here before me. Many of the witnesses are aging. I was worried that that tale would be lost. And so I decided after coming here to Brookings to tell this story in lieu of the usual ambassadorial memoir. Many of my friends have written them, and I thoroughly enjoy them all. I have a bookshelf full of them, but I thought I would do something different and tell a memoir of the house of five people who live there and through that of this larger fight that keeps happening between democracy and illiberalism. And so I set out to write the book four years ago. Great. Thank you. One of the things that struck me is just the drama in this sort of palace over the hundred years. You know, it was built, and we'll come back to that in a second, amid sort of great difficulty. It was occupied by a Wehrmacht general during World War II. It was ransacked by the Soviets just after that and then became the U.S. ambassadorial home. So there's an amazing sort of story that you weave in with this tragic history of Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic leading, of course, to independence, thankfully, today after the Cold War. But let's start with Otto Pechik, who's really sort of colorful, interesting character. He's a banker. He's sort of made a fortune the wealthiest man, I think, at the time. But he also struggles to build his house. This is really a labor of love. He basically goes broke and has to be bailed out to try to finish it. He comes up with all sorts of ways to do that. His long-suffering wife is sort of, you know, pleading with him to look sort of elsewhere for to direct his energies. But can you tell us a little bit about him, but also why he is so passionate about trying to build his home? Well, in telling the story of this magnificent palace, you could never build this today. It was Planning was started a century ago. Nestled in the middle of urban Prague, acres and acres of gardens and this massive house overlooking them, Otto Petschek built it in a beautiful curve. It's so unusual even among Prague buildings. In telling that story, of course, you have to start with the builder, Otto Petschek. He was very much a man of that era of optimism and Wilsonian democracy that dawned with the end of World War I. He was the wealthiest, among the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man in post-World War Czechoslovakia. That country enjoyed the 10th largest economy in the world between the wars. That's part of the reason it was such a delicious morsel that Hitler craved. And Otto was the coal baron of the country, had the largest lignite coal, brown coal holdings in the world. Actually, he accumulated them. I write in the book about his World War I bet on democracy and on America's entry into the war that proved correct. And so he decided to build this house as a tribute to his vision of the new transatlantic order of this Western-oriented approach that the new country of Czechoslovakia would take. Tom, he carried a pocket-sized copy of the Charter of the League of Nations with him. It still exists in the Petchek Library, very badly dog-eared, multiple copies in case he ever lost one. I was fortunate to talk to his daughter, who was still living when I started my project, 
and other witnesses who helped me with those details and explain these artifacts. So Otto was the man of uh, post-World War I optimism, and of course we know what became of that optimism and his struggle to build this house. Sometimes I ask myself, if I had all the money in the world, what would I do with it? He did have all the money in the world, and he spent it all on this house. Nobody knows, and I went through all the records, how many times he tore it down and rebuilt it, finally firing his architect in order to take it over himself to get it perfect. And he did achieve that perfection, but he exhausted his finances. It had devastating consequences for his businesses. Then the depression and the rise of fascism hit. He fought through it to finish the house, and then there's a very dramatic confrontation. But I don't want to give away the end of the Otto Pechek section for our readers, but... uh, big drama as he tries to finish this house and deal with everything that's going on in Europe and the world. Yeah. So one big theme of the book is a personal story, and it's about your mother, who's from the Czech Republic, and it's about her story and this really remarkable odyssey that she went on. And you have this fascinating, the end of each section, you talk about that family history and you talk about the Pechiks leaving Czechoslovakia as the sort of rise of fascism is underway. And you talk about your grandfather sort of saying to your mother, maybe we should leave too. Is this a sign? And of course, those are the struggles that people were going through. You can't tell the future when you're living sort of in the present. But could you tell us a little bit about her, that family story, and how that sort of connects into all of this and the sort of process that you went under as you were researching this and telling this family history as well as this larger drama. I struggled at first with how to tell this story. And the initial structure of the book was going to be the story of four of the notable people who lived in the house, the Jewish magnate who built it, the German general who occupied it, the American coal warrior who tried to save the house, and Prague, from communism and the American ex-movie star ambassador who helped end the Cold War from inside that house. What I struggled with was what should the connective tissue be for these four stories that are really the story of the century? And at first I was going to write about my own experiences, but I had a wonderful editor at Crown who bid on the book. We had a little auction in New York. And she said, look, I'm only going to bid on this book if you will make a big change. And I said, what? She says, you tell your mother's story to connect these chapters. Don't drop in and out of the present. Tell your mom's story. I said, oh, that is a great idea. So that's how I came up. The book opens with me and my mom. It opens with me calling my mom from Air Force One en route she's, to Prague. She's upset that you've been named ambassador. She is. Yeah. She's we'll nervous. Come back to that in a minute. She's nervous yeah. that President Obama wants to do that. And the book closes in 2011 with dealing with the first signs of today's liberalism that's in full flower on both sides of the ocean with my mom as my advisor. And in between, I tie together the story of the other four people by telling the story of my mom. If Otto Pechek was the richest Czechoslovak Jew, my mother was the poorest Czechoslovak Jew, Tom, growing up in a little shtetl, a little Jewish village, in a tiny house crammed with books, her rabbi father. 
And it turned out to be, I wish I could claim it was my idea, but it turned out to be a wonderful way to integrate the story, to describe how my mother, in between each of these big sections, to describe how my mother experienced the rise of fascism, World War II, the advent of communism, escaping communism, and restarting her life in the United States. It's a very moving story. I mean, one of the parts that I found most dramatic was that as we get to the end of the war, you know, it's basically in its last days, and they're being held captive by the SS, and then there's an air raid by the Allied forces that kills many people in the convoy. And it's a very dramatic moment where you, you see sort of light at the end of the tunnel and then the potential for tragedy, but thankfully history takes a different turn. So I would definitely recommend to people, I think that is one of your book publisher, I think made a very good <laughs> recommendation <laughs> to tell that story. You mentioned the last chapter, which looks at your time there, and your mom is your advisor. She, when you are named ambassador, is nervous because she is worried about anti-Semitism in Europe. You say to her, this is a terrific story. Our family comes from the Czech Republic. We're going back on Air Force One as ambassador, as an American Jew of European descent, that this is a wonderful story about how much the world has changed. And she says, no, you've taken the wrong lesson. Things can always get worse. <laughs> you know, you need to remember that the past could be the future. And when you're ambassador, that moment is one of great optimism and hope especially in Europe, where there's a belief that things, even though there are problems, the Euro crisis and post-9-11 and everything else, there's a sense that the arc of history, as your former boss put it, is sort of headed in a positive direction. But since then, it actually has taken a negative turn. We've seen this rise of liberalism. You were sort of there at the beginning of that. You tell this story near the end about sort of pride parade and sort of the reaction to it and your role in that. But my question for you is, who do you think looking at Europe today is right? Is it your mom who says history is something that we can't escape from and it doesn't necessarily always go in the right direction and we can go back and that things could get worse, that there are real antecedents there that we can't ignore? Or is it sort of your optimistic sense that actually if we do the right things, that we are on a better sort of trajectory and that the past is past? Well, when I got to Prague, it was clear to me that the briefings that I had been given did not precisely accord with the reality of the liberal currents that were starting to run. This was at the end of the Medvedev days. Clearly, Putin was going to make his reascent. And I really saw both emanating from Russia, but also homegrown President Václav Klaus, who was the president when I arrived. Who you had a decent relationship I, with. I had a good relationship with him. It was my job as ambassador to have a good relationship with him. But we fervently disagreed, anti-EU, anti-climate change, a climate change denier, somewhat of a populist, a nativist, a pan-Slavist very critical of many of the values, the liberal values that I believed in. And, you know, I could see between what was happening in Russia, between the illiberal trends stirring in Prague and what was going on over the rest of Europe, that this cycle that has happened before over and over again for the past hundred years, the reaction to liberalism and democracy was 
stirring. And I really, of course, I write about this, and my mom felt somewhat justified when I ended up getting into a series of fights as I advanced what I believe are transatlantic values and this minority, but a very hardcore minority to some extent led by the then president and those who are even further to the right fought with me over events like the embassy sponsored and I personally sponsored very vocally a Czech-led Prague Pride LGBT event that turned into a huge cause celeb. And we write about that fight and my mom advising me. I believe that my mother's pessimism is right in one regard and wrong in another. In the long term, it's been proven wrong. And the larger theme of the book is there have been a series of illiberal waves. And the United States has led the interventions Democratic surges, if you will, 1918, again, an effort in 1945, hanging on during the Cold War, the triumph of 1989. And every time, sooner or later, there's an illiberal counterattack. We always have won so far, and we face down far worse illiberal threats, Hitler, Stalin, than we face today. By the way, you're right to focus on Europe, but Really, I write about the transatlantic aspects of it, too, because America, one of the things you learn when you're ambassador is that democracy really is anchored on both sides of the Atlantic. So the American role is very important. I think fundamentally it's up to us whether the pessimism is accurate or not, Tom, because if you look at history, you know, it doesn't predict, but it sometimes rhymes. Relative, there are moments turning points when we could have saved ourselves a long struggle for democracy and had a quicker triumph. And you look at things like the, I learned, I didn't know about this before I researched the book. Everybody knows about Operation Valkyrie, the failed 1944 coup against Hitler. There was a similar coup that was in place if Chamberlain and the West had stood up to Hitler at Munich and it fell apart when they didn't. And by the way, Roosevelt, FDR was a part of that. He wrote this moral equivalence, the same letter to President Benes of Czechoslovakia and to Hitler saying, please, guys, let's not fight. Terrible. The one I didn't know about, which you wrote about, was the November 1939 attack on the Nazi leadership when they narrowly escaped sort of mass assassinations. So there's lots of, even for those of us who read a lot of European history, there's a huge amount of new information here and it's told in a really interesting way. So, Norm, I think we're probably out of time, but I'm sure we'll be back to talk more about this, but also about what the larger picture in the future for Central and Eastern Europe and also for liberal democracy. But congratulations on a really wonderful and beautifully written book and best of luck on the book tour. And it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. You can find Norm Eisen's book, The Last Palace, wherever you buy books. And while you're shopping, check out Tom Wright's book, All Measures Short of War. And now it's another coffee break with Danny Bahar. Hi there, my name is Danny Bahar, and I'm a Rubinstein Fellow at the Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings. I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela, a developing country, and I come from a family of immigrants. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors who arrived from Europe just after World War II. 
And I lived there until college, after which I moved to Israel. And I lived there for many years. While in Israel, I joined the Hebrew University of Jerusalem to study a master's in economics. I was originally an engineer, a computer engineer. And that really inspired me to become a scholar. There I was exposed for the first time to academia in the deep sense of academia with many professors who were world-renowned researchers in economics. And there I understood that there are so many questions that were yet to be answered. And I really digged into the techniques that economists use to do research. And I became really excited about doing research. I was at the time in between being a practitioner or being a researcher in the area of development economics. That's what led me to come to the Kennedy School at Harvard a few years later to pursue a master's in economic development. And at that point, after being exposed a little bit more about the world of practitioner, I decided to pursue a PhD. And that's where I decided I want to have a career that mixes a little bit the research and the policy. I think today one of the most important issues that we are facing is actually the issue that has kept economists very busy over the past decades, which is what is keeping poor countries from being rich and how can they become rich. And that actually goes beyond countries. You can think about it in terms of people, why are there so many people in poverty or why are there so many people stuck in the middle class or why are there so many firms that are small and unable to grow. And I think that all those questions are related. And today, I think we see how those aspects that we don't really have good answers to are really playing a big role in shaping our politics. And I think that that's something I'm really interested in. So in this context, I'm working a lot on looking at this question from a very particular angle. Development economists understand that there are many things that can help a country grow or can help a firm to grow. Those things include a huge range of explanations. Some of them have to do with the institutions the country has. Some of them have to do with the endowments, the workers and the machines. Some of them have to do with the geography. But the one that economists mostly agree that it's the most important one is productivity. We don't really know what productivity is. It's a residual, but basically you should think about it as technologies or things that help us be more productive and to do more with the same resources. And in that aspect, I've been really researching a lot on one aspect that makes us more productive, which is know-how and knowledge. How do we learn? How do we know to do more with what we have? And it turns out that that knowledge is something that is very difficult to acquire, very difficult to transfer, and it really requires human interaction. Think about a surgeon. For a surgeon to become a surgeon, he or she, they would need really to, not only to read all the books, but they need to stand next to another surgeon who has a lot of experience and and learn. That's really the only way that they can acquire. So within that context, I've been focusing lately a lot on how migrants and refugees could be the key to economic development because they are the main flow that is moving brains from places to places. So when migrants move from one country to another, they also bring in this knowledge that results in this in the sending country or the receiving country in becoming more productive, being able to open new firms, being able to grow faster, et cetera, et cetera. I've been also working a lot on more policy aspects of migration and refugees and how important it is to allow, through policy, to have a comprehensive migration 
policy that really maximizes the benefits of migrants and refugees. And in that context, for instance, I've been following very closely what's happening in South America, where there have been up to even 2 million people from Venezuela that have fled the country and they're establishing themselves in other countries in the region, fleeing from one of the worst humanitarian crises that we've seen in the hemisphere. And we are really putting together and thinking how actually the region as a whole can define a comprehensive policy that will allow these refugees and migrants to settle and to help the development of the receiving countries. And eventually, these people will hopefully be the key for growth and the reconstruction of Venezuela. One book that I could recommend to our listeners is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I read it a few months ago, and it's really fascinating how in the book he explains that these people that we see as being extremely successful in what they do, either as lawyers or in sports or any profession, it's not just a matter of luck. It's not just a matter of being talented. Basically, the book is telling us that these people really went through a lot of work and worked really, really hard. Many of them were in the right place in the right circumstances, and that actually allowed them to become very successful in what they do. The book talks about the 10,000 hours rule of thumb, and basically he's saying that people who are very successful in what they do, computer programming or in sports or as a salesman or as a lawyer or as a doctor, they actually probably gathered experience that for 10,000 hours, which is a lot of time. And I think this book is really important in the context of the research that we've been discussing before because it means that there is a big component in terms of our social interactions that keep people from achieving their potential, and that should be fixed. But there's also a big component that gives us hope that everybody can really achieve the fullest of his or her potential if you work really, really hard and you are prepared to do the thing that you do best when the time comes. Learn more about Danny Bahar and his research on our website, where you can also listen to his podcast interviews, including a recent one where he talked about visiting the Venezuela-Colombia border, where he witnessed Venezuela's refugee crisis firsthand. Before we roll the credits, I want to wish the Brookings Cafeteria podcast a happy birthday. On August 30th, 2013, we published the first episode of this show, my interview with Brookings Senior Fellow Ben Wittes. We talked about liberty and security, privacy, and government surveillance. The issues are still germane, and although I was new at this, the episode is still worth a listen. So happy fifth birthday, Brookings Cafeteria podcast. Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holster. The producers are Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, 5 on 45, 
and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.